Welcome to Be Positive, Shoot Negative Podcast. This week we have a very talented artist, Christopher, a.k.a. the Photo Department. You guys know the deal. So without further ado, let's hop right in. Welcome to Be Positive, Shoot Negative Podcast. How are you doing today? Great. I'm doing awesome. How are you? Doing great. Um, So everyone has their photography story of how they got into it. What is yours and how did you find the wonderful world of photography? Uh, Great question. It was super by accident. Um, I had changed schools uh, my sophomore year of high school. And when I enrolled, uh, I enrolled late. Um, And I had to choose an elective course just to round out my schedule. And I didn't know what to choose. I had like no idea. Um, And there's only a few kind of selections left. And one of them was uh, darkroom photography. It's like a darkroom class. And I just thought, oh, I could just screw around in that class and it'll be easy. Um, and uh, I can like, I had friends that were in that class. And so uh, the first day of the class, the, the teacher said, um, he handed out a roll of Tri-X to everybody. Um, and he said, you're going to get a camera this week. You're going to shoot this entire roll of film. And then next week, we're going to process this film. And we're going to print your favorite picture from this roll of film. And we were like, okay. And he said, your homework this week is to get a camera uh so my stepdad took me to I think he took me to a pawn shop and we went and he got me a a Canon AE1 with a 50 millimeter lens with the 1.8 I think um and that first week uh the teacher gave us like some basic instruction on like how film cameras work and like how to expose properly uh and then we just had to go out and shoot you know 36 exposures and just figure it out. And uh, that next Monday, we went into the dark room and we, we put the film in the tanks and uh, we did the black and white processing. I remember it was D76. Um, and then I pulled, you know, after the, uh, the stop bath and after doing the, uh, the fixer and everything. And then um, the final stage was the, the photo flow. And I pull it out of the photo flow and I see like, oh my God, there's pictures on this. Like what? Uh, and then we had to you know hang them and dry them and cut them put them in sheets and then look at the enlarger and like find the one that we wanted to print like our favorite photo and I took a portrait of my friend Tom and I was like okay this one looks like it might actually be a working photograph um so we put it in the enlarger figured it out uh did the enlargement and then when I put the sheet of paper into the developer tray and started developing it and then that photograph just magically appeared out of nowhere I was like, oh my God, this is actual magic. (laughs) And then from that point on, I was just addicted to chasing that feeling of developing that first, that first picture. And it was completely by mistake. Like I had no, no clue I'd be into photography at all. Um, And then since my sophomore year, I've had a film camera with me pretty much everywhere I go. And that was, I don't know what, 20 years ago, 20, no, wait, I'm 34 now. I'll be 35 on the 20th. So I don't know math you know a long time ago you are a professional photographer when did you know you made it what are what is some advice that you can give to people who would love to do this as a job Mm. um I don't know if there's a specific time where you know that you've uh, made it um I think I think the first time I realized that oh I'm a professional photographer is um I got an email from one of my first like bigger clients and I had no idea how to, uh, you know, price out my work. I was just kind of like, well, whatever the budget is that you have, like, I'll figure it out. Um, and uh, they were like, you know, what's your rate? And I said, well, I like to work on a per project basis. Like, so whatever you guys have allocated, we can figure out what works best for you. Um, and they were like, oh, the budget is this amount of money. And I'm like, that's an incredible amount of money. And it was obscene I think it was somewhere north of twenty thousand dollars um for the photographer budget for just to pay the photographer and to make sure that you know for me to pay for an assistant make any rentals or anything and I was just like oh okay cool I'm a professional photographer now um if you want to be a professional photographer you better love photography and everything that comes with it because it's not it's not glitz and glam and it's not shooting models all the time. And it's not, um, it's not big budgets. It's a lot of grind. Um, and unless you are really, really in love with everything about photography, I would say, um, don't ruin it for yourself. Keep it as a hobby, enjoy it as much as you can. 
Um, I there have been some times where I've wanted to quit because it's really, really hard and it's often thankless and often the budgets are so small you don't even make any money. But because I've persevered and kind of kept up with it, um, I've been able to make a career for myself that I'm you know still growing in and it's really, really great. But I have had to really like suck it up and do some work I didn't want to do. It's It's been quite a journey. So I would say, yeah, unless you're like, in love with every aspect of what it comes to uh, shooting photography. Um, keep it as a hobby. <laughs> You're an amazing photographer and you really mastered the use of natural light. Thank you. Why do you like natural light more than like studio light? Uh, what should people be looking for who want to implement that into their artwork? Natural light, it's, it's just funny. People that talk about natural and studio light all the time in these like different um, different terms and that they're so like different from each other but natural light is just point source of light super far away which is the sun you know um and the way it interacts with with the with the world and with the objects the man-made objects and then you know the vegetation and wildlife it's just like that's the way it interacts with the, with the earth and then if we want to emulate that we have to bring it into a smaller space and so everything becomes like this macro thing um i don't think i'd prefer natural light there was definitely a time where I was like, oh, I'm shooting natural light or I'm shooting nothing. Like, man, I got to do natural light. Um, but shooting natural light all the time for work is definitely a privilege because it changes constantly. Like just today it was blinding bright and now the sun has moved behind or the clouds have moved in front of the sun. So now it's like pretty muted and overcast. And so, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it changes so much that you can't really rely on it all the time. Um, uh, I like natural light because it's just there's no changing it there's no controlling it you can diffuse it sort of you can you know manipulate it in small ways but in reality like you just kind of have to bend to its will and when you know how to capture natural light properly and you know like the correct times for for getting the best out of natural light you can get some of the most beautiful imagery that it's really really hard to replicate in a studio setting um like blue and gold hour um, those are really, really hard to replicate in a studio setting um, convincingly just because there's a lot of factors that go into what makes blue hour and golden hour look the way they do, atmospheric conditions, the time of the year, the angle of the sun in relation to where you are, so many things. Um, you can come close in the studio, but it's not super, um, not super easy. When it comes to studio work, uh, technology has come a long way and there are so many creative people out there who do incredible things with studio work um, and studio lighting um, that continually inspires me. So um, I think that they both have their place, but I've learned to not be precious about natural light. And um, I've actually been super inspired and really um, energized by finding out ways or seeing other people finding ways to emulate really beautiful natural light or even something beyond that in a studio setting, um, which has been really cool. So a lot of my branded shoots I've done recently and a lot of um, stuff I've done for brands recently, um, you know, it's been, uh, it's been winter, even though it's LA. Um, so doing that, you know, all these brands want like summer and spring uh, season um, stuff right now. And so getting all that stuff shot in winter, you're going to need to like figure it out during the, you know, inside. So um, doing all that stuff has been using natural or uh, fake light inside to emulate natural light. And it's, it's, it's doable and it, it works really well. Um, and it's really fun. So I, I don't know. I, I think that uh, I think being able to master both, being able to deal with both and know which part of your work that, um, they each fit into is kind of the most important thing. What are some like advice you can give to people who like don't have the space to have like an in-home studio or can't afford to even rent a studio? Um, I think what it comes down to is just knowing how to utilize space. Um, I have a really nice um, house right now that's really small, but it has a really big kind of living room, dining room area. Um, and really big is like, you know, relative it's not actually that big but it's big enough where I can set up um, a little table and then have some light coming in from one side and 
uh, be able to put lights in different places. But even before that, I was shooting everything I did in my living room, or I'm not my living room, sorry, my bedroom and uh, my dining room in my old house when I lived in Oakland. Um, and that was a tiny, tiny space. Like my bedroom was like 10 by 10 or something. It was very small. Uh, and the only advice I can give is like you have to get creative and really experiment and figure out what you can and can't do in your space because you'll be surprised at what you can achieve in a small space if you get creative. Um, I had to do all of these like branded shoots, like uh, product shoots, like on my bed, on a piece of um, like poster board uh, with a back, like, you know, trying to cheat a background like against a wall or something. And like, it sucked to, to like have to be limited to that, but I wouldn't be where I'm at now if I didn't get scrappy and like have to figure that kind of stuff out. So um, definitely, renting a studio space is not necessary at all for making good photography. It's, it's really nice to have a space like that, but it's not necessary at all. Uh, you mentioned earlier that the process of having the darkroom print and seeing it just magically appear, mm-hmm. um, why are you more drawn to the analog process instead of just exclusively shooting digital? There it has been so much um, innovation in the digital space that's like incredible. I love Fuji cameras. Um, the only digital cameras that I shoot um, uh, or that I have purchased have been Fuji cameras because I think that they really understand light and color and their cameras are, are really ergonomically pleasing to use. But um, I think having been exposed to that the film process so early on, and having been introduced to photography that way, I think it just kind of made this indelible mark on me. And I just couldn't kind of like, I think of even digital photography in very filmic terms. Um, When I edit my film or when I edit my digital files, I edit it just like I edit my film files. Like I shoot as flat as I can or as flat as possible. And then I go in and I just tweak a little bit to make sure the color looks right. And that's kind of it. I do everything in camera. Um, that's for digital and for film. And so since I can keep the two really close together as far as like workflow, um, there's not really a, having to choose between either one. One of the things I think that makes it really important or makes it really like attractive for me is you have like this artifact that just is forever. It's not on a hard drive it's not like bits bits on a you know on an sd card or something it's like a real tangible thing and um film cameras i mean there are very well made digital cameras but film cameras like a lot of film cameras are just like these tanks that just last forever because they were over designed like my my nikon f2 that thing is a weapon like i could hit someone i could kill someone with it and then take pictures right afterwards like uh it's insane and then like my rb67 like that thing's a beast um i i could anchor a ship with that thing um and part of my uh ethos i guess as a person is like i i would prefer to buy things that i could repair over time uh rather than replace so my clothes i try to buy clothing that like i'll wear for a long long time that i could like sew if i you know rip it or something Um, my cameras are the same way. I want them to be, uh, I want them to have a longevity. Film is film and it's been filmed forever. Digital sensors will change and keep changing and they'll introduce new features and autofocus and all this stuff. And those things are all really great. But um, at a certain point, it's like, I just want to make a picture, man. Like, I just want to make the best picture I can. And if I, I know if I shoot it on film, all these other things that I don't need just kind of fall away. And I just have to focus on the light and the composition. And that's kind of it. That's that's how I was like introduced. Um, Freshman year of college, I I was just sitting in my dorm room and I don't, I've never looked up anything photography ever. Mm -hmm. And I was just sitting on YouTube after class and a King James video popped up. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know if it was like geotag because like I was in San Francisco Mm -hmm. and he was just like, was like there but then out of nowhere I was just like all right I'm going thrifting to go find a film camera and just and that's how I got introduced and then that Christmas I got a digital camera and it just didn't feel the same yeah like I always now I I I still have a digital camera but I I have never thought about like 
oh, I want to go buy this new camera with the 24 megapixel big sensor. And I'm like, I'll just shoot my medium format Pentax 6.7 and that's all I need. I mean, that's the thing too, is like, there's this uh, really, it's like, what is it called? Um, Instant gratification. When you take a digital image, it's like, bam, it's right there. You can see it. I can take a million images at once. Like I can do all these things that are just like instant gratification or like backups on backups. And I understand the need for that sometimes, but like, I feel like that cripples me in a way. Um, if I'm at a shoot, like if I'm shooting a wedding or if I'm shooting like uh, um, a model and some clothes, if I have a digital camera, I can shoot thousands of images and be like, oh, I got it in there somewhere. But if I shoot film, it's gotta be like, okay, every frame has to count. And even though it doesn't have, like if I shoot 30 rolls of film, not every frame is gonna be a winner, but like if I shoot 30 rolls of film, more of my frames are gonna be good rather than like digital like a small percentage will be good and that seems wasteful to me i'm not wasting anything literally but it's just like a waste of time a waste of like weird effort to just like shoot that many frames it's just like why go through that um so that instant gratification doesn't like appeal to me anymore what's more gratifying to me is shooting a roll of film taking it home processing that film hanging it up to dry and then looking at it up to the light after it's dried and being like damn like I did this like this is cool and then scanning it and then you know it eventually becomes digital but this this intermediate of being a film photograph first uh it changes the whole approach to to taking the image for me yeah that's how I recently got into four by five and um I'm scared I'm scared as shit every time I go out (laughs) with it because I'm like Cause I don't, I, I can't process it at home. Like I, I do, I process all my 35 in medium format and I have a Epson uh, mm-hmm. V600, which mm-hmm. can't stand four by five. So I'm like, okay, now I got to spend like $20 to go get it developed and scan. And then it's like <laughs> $5 to develop. So I'm like, I gotta be sure. Yeah. I gotta be really, really sure when I'm, I'm about to take a picture. So I definitely feel that. And uh, it's like a lot of uh prep work i feel like i prep more for when i go out with that camera than any other camera yeah it's a whole process i'm kind of a hoarder right now i have like 96 rolls of film holy yeah well what i've been doing is i've been uh i purchased for the year oh wow because i have all the chemicals and stuff so i i have like rodinol and Mm. you get about like 50 rolls on that so I buy 50 rolls of black and white and then I have three things of cine still mm-hmm. and I get about 20 rolls uh, per box. Mm-hmm. So I buy for the year normally, so I don't have to worry about it. And it's, it's less money in the grand scheme of it all because you're buying bulk. Yeah. So that's kind of what I'm starting to do. Man, I should probably start doing that. I just had to buy yesterday because I, I have, I have, uh, I think about 30 rolls of film from my trip I just got back from, and um, <clears throat> I'm going to scan them all. I'm going to do them all myself. And so I bought the big Patterson tank. That's the eight or the five reel tank. And then I bought two of the Cinestill kits to make a half gallon so I can do the whole thing. And I'm just going to do everything here. Um, and I just figured out, I just, after being a photographer for this long, I just figured out like three days ago that you can process um two rolls of 120 on one reel i didn't know that and oh, so yeah i didn't I think, know i think like uh joe tobiason showed me that mm. recently and i was like i never thought of that like they're designed for 220 rolls yeah and i was just I, like didn't didn't cross my mind but I, uh and then i was like okay well how do i do this and then i looked up a youtube video last night this guy who's like oh i just peeled the tape off when i peel off the backing paper and then I put the other roll right up next to it and use the tape as the guide. And I'm like, oh my God, that's genius. Like, and I never would have thought of that kind of stuff. So uh, now I'm going to do, I feel so wasteful because I've been doing one roll of 120 per reel forever. <laughs> I could have been doing two. It's so stupid. Ugh. That's innovation. Uh, yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you lived up in Oakland. Uh, you mm-hmm. photographed uh, the Black Lives Matter movement up there. Mm-hmm. What made you feel like you needed to document these moments? What compelled you to get out of the house? Um, it was 
it was this thing where growing up in in the bay area and especially in oakland um i you know i'm white i have a white family but like my everybody around me my peers have always been very multicultural and very diverse like i've never been in a very like white place where i'm surrounded by mostly white people um and so at a younger age i kind of really understood a little bit about what it was like um as far as like how different it was for white people versus non-white people in america um obviously when i was younger in much subtler ways like ways i couldn't like put my finger on but like now looking back it's like wow i saw things when i was younger that if i saw them now i would be livid like going crazy because of how inhumane it was um now seeing the you know basically seeing the murder of george floyd live on tv and um you know after years of seeing this kind of you know blatant racial injustice and like brutality against black and brown bodies by the police um especially in the bay area um it just was like, I can't just sit here anymore. I can't just like not do something. But what the hell can I do? Like I have been trying my best to be an ally um, since I was, you know, in my teens uh, in the ways that I best can understood, understand how to do that. Um, and, you know, there comes a point where it's just like, okay, I, I got to do more. And so the one thing I thought I could do uh, without stepping on people's toes or without like centering myself was at least documenting what was happening. Um, at, if not for the historical record, at least to show maybe people who I have an audience with more of what's going on and maybe waking some more people up to the reality of, you know, if you don't live in Oakland or you don't live in like a major metropolis or you don't live like in a state that like has all these things going on, like, look, like, look what's happening right outside my door. Um, and so it just seemed like if I can take, yeah, if I can take these pictures and I can share them and I can be um, just sort of an amplifier for voices and experiences that would only serve to be helpful as a white person in this circumstance. And, and uh, yeah, it, it just, it, there wasn't even a thought to it really. It just kind of was like, this is insane. Let's go. And so, yeah, I went to a bunch of marches. I, I documented a bunch of them. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a lot. It still is a lot, you know, um, there's a lot of talk. There was a lot of talk about how things were petering out with Black Lives Matter and the movement being, you know, not as like central in the news anymore, but people fail to realize it's not like a moment. It's a movement. It's a whole shifting of the way society looks at black and brown bodies in America and the way that like policing of those bodies takes place and how policing in general takes place um and it has changed things so much just in the short amount of time that this happened from you know early last year to now um and there's still going to be a lot more there's because there's still there's still more happening there's still you know police brutality there's still you know black men sitting in jail for you know, petty crimes that they shouldn't have spent any time in jail for. So it's like, it just keeps going on. So uh, I just wanted to amplify that as much as I could and be a, a white ally that was helpful and not centering myself. Uh, what would you say is, or was your most memorable moment with a camera in hand? Um, I think actually, um, being there's a photograph I took uh, during one of the marches, um, actually to Oakland Mayor Libby Schaaf's house. Uh, it was a it was a BLM march to get them to remove um, police officers from Oakland schools, and there were a lot of at that point there was a lot of news coverage about how BLM was violent, about how they were rioting, about how these marches were dangerous and like, you know, all this stuff and police were being attacked, all this stuff. And that's actually one of the reasons why I kept going to marches too. I wanted to be a person to be like, actually, no, like I was there. 
it wasn't like that. Nothing like that happened. It was peaceful. And so at this march, tensions are high because, you know, everyone's like screaming about how the BLM movement's dangerous or, or violent. And, um, you know, all this stuff is happening. Uh, so I get to the original rally point for the, for the march to start. And everyone's like, spirits are up, there's music playing, people are getting ready to start marching. And then we start marching up towards Oakland, uh, to Libby Schaaf's house. And the entire time, there's like moments within the march that are somber um, because there's people on a, on a in the, the organizers of the march are on this flatbed truck in the front and they have a microphone and they're talking to people and getting people involved as they're marching. You know, they're repeating the names of the people who had been killed by police. They're talking about, you know, the police being in uh, schools and how the negative impact of that is. And um, so there's like these moments of like deep sadness that the whole march can feel. And then there's moments of joy where it's like, we're here together to like do this thing. And we're coming together to show people like, we're not going to be silenced. And it was just this huge emotional outpouring and then we get to Libby Schaaf's house and the, one of the things that they kept saying the entire time was like when we get there stay off her property don't touch any of her property don't throw anything don't yell don't nothing we're not doing that coming there for that we're coming here to show them our you know solidarity basically or show them our force show them that we are a huge movement that can't be stopped so we get there and there's speeches and people are talking. And then, um, uh, of course, you know, she doesn't come out. I don't even think she did. I don't even know if she was there. She might've been there. The windows were all closed and stuff. But uh, at one point, you know, the sun had gone down and they just were like, you know, we passed out some candles. And if anyone doesn't have a candle, just hold up your phone. We're going to have a moment of silence for like, you know, the people who passed and for everything. And so we're talking like hundreds, if not thousands of people snaked all the way down her street like all the way down and everyone is silent with their heads down and their their candles or their phones up and it's just like the sea of candles and everyone's silent and it's just like this is what this is about like all these people coming together and I just took one picture and I don't know it was just kind of like the actual opposite of what all these people were saying the right wing news people and all these like pundits and 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 loud ass people on on tv are saying that they're so violent like actually this is what they are it's a it's it's a group of people who have been completely destroyed by racism and brutality in america who despite all that still come together in peace to try to change something to the positive and it's just like you can't deny that and with that photograph it shows just like how do you deny it there's photographic evidence so that was pretty I'm never going to forget that at all. In your bio, you mentioned that you have this teacher aspect to who you are as a person. Mm. Is that why you started a YouTube channel? Um, and then what are some tips for people who would like to actually start a YouTube channel? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the channel originally started to be educational. Um, the first video that I put out was about medium format, like shooting medium format um, film and what the difference between medium format and 35 millimeter was. Um, and then as the channel went on and having more interaction with, with people, uh, it kind of morphed into different things. Um, there's some entertainment, but a lot of it is just to be kind of like, I try to be educational in everything that I do so that if some young or new photographer, you know, finds my channel and watches any video, they can, have fun watching it, but learn something as well, and then be able to apply that learning in a practical way. Um, which is why I don't take super grandiose themes and like try to like, oh, here's how you use pro photo like lights on a high key like fashion shoot because like uh, you know people who are watching my channel like probably don't have access to like a full suite of pro photo gear and like a huge set. So it's more like, hey, here's this cheap film. This is what it looks like. This is what I use it for. Like, oh, here's this cool camera I got, you know, or, oh, here's here's how you process film at home, something like that. Um, I just, I do like teaching people. Um, I do like sharing knowledge and 
I think that that drives a lot of why I started the channel and why I continue the channel. Um, as far as tips for people who want to start a YouTube channel, um, it's hard. It's very hard. Uh, it's heartbreaking at times. <laughs> you put a lot of work into videos and then they don't really go anywhere or you don't get, you know, the, uh, um, the eyeballs on it that you hope to, uh, not always as hard, but it's also super rewarding. Um, if you have something that you're super passionate about that you want to teach, uh, or that you want to show or share with people, uh, honestly, as long as you have decent lighting, then you're fine. Like I just go for it. Just make some videos. Um, try to be concise. Try not to ramble for a long time, like I'm doing now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if you have a good a good little corner or, or a wall or something that you can sit in front of that has good lighting and you know isn't really busy and you uh, have something interesting to talk about or show or share, like just do it and put it up and see how see how it goes. If if people like it, then you know you'll be able to expand on that and you know you're going to get immediate feedback you know youtube commenters are <laughs> they're a very specific group of people and they definitely let you know if something's working or not so um just if you want to make a youtube channel just do it just go for it everyone who is artistic in any aspect has felt at one moment that their work doesn't meet a certain standard mm. how do you get through those moments how do you push through those moments and what's your process when you feel that way? I used to feel that way a lot. Um, imposter syndrome is real. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I, like seven years ago, I didn't even think that like being a photographer was a viable career option for me, not because it seemed like it wasn't a real career, but it just seemed like, you know, the people that get those jobs that do that work, they're just like mythical, you know, they're, they're, they have access and they have all the stuff, but, um, in reality, it's just realizing that every single thing that you do personally is your own thing. And it, there's no, there's no standard unless you put it on yourself. And so for me, I was like making images for, I was working, like making images for brands or companies or being hired to do something. And then looking at my work and being like, oh, like it's not good enough. But then I'm being paid to make this. Like, this isn't like, I'm putting unrealistic expectations on myself. Uh, at the end of the day, do I like it? Yes, I do. Uh, does the client like it? They love it. Okay, cool. What's the problem? Um, and the problem there is me thinking that I had to be perfect all the time or not knowing what perfect or what good was and like, like comparing myself to the likes of like, I don't know, Annie Leibovitz or something. Well, Annie Leibovitz has an entire team, you know, and she has like expensive equipment and decades of know-how. I don't have any of that, you know? So why should I be making the same caliber of work that Annie Leibovitz is? It's just not, doesn't make sense. Um, but what I, what I do do is I look at the context of what I'm doing and I'm like, okay, did I put all of my effort into this? Did I try as hard as I could? Did I, did I put the care into this work that it deserves? If I did and I like the outcome, then it's definitely good enough. Um, and, you know, there's always room for improvement. I definitely am trying to improve my photography every day. Um, and once you stop trying to improve, once you get stagnant with your work, that's when you can start thinking like, uh-oh, like I need to do something. But if you're trying hard and you like the work that you're doing, stop comparing yourself and stop critiquing yourself to death. Critiquing your art to death is the death of art and you need to just put it out there and be okay with it and learn from it get better but stop critiquing yourself to death um you have mentioned that you've worked with some amazing companies uh levi everlane dream cloud third love the pearl of sf and many more mm -hmm. what were some of your favorite sets to do man um <laughs> all of them uh it's hard to it's it's kind of hard to go back and look at exactly like what I did and think of what was like my favorite um I did have some like really really cool experiences um like with Levi's uh getting to shoot the um you know Levi's clothing of course but also getting to shoot like um they have a whole team 
of tailors called the, the master tailors, which are the tailors that work at the headquarters. And then they kind of like, um, set the protocol for how tailoring throughout the company is done. And so that was really cool, interesting to me. So when they had their first annual, like tailors, master tailors summit, where they had master tailors from all over the world come to San Francisco and they exchanged ideas, exchanged information, uh, learn new techniques together, all that kind of stuff. Um, I got to photograph the whole week that they did that. And it was like such a cool experience, like seeing these people who are like masters of their craft and getting to just like be a fly on the wall and photograph them in their like element. That was so like, that was like the coolest thing ever. And like, when do you get to do that? Like it, it was such a cool experience. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. Uh, other than that, I mean, I got to help build sets and and like build worlds for Nectar and Dreamcloud. Like, you know, it's a mattress company. They make mattresses and that's what I was photographing. But like, we really got to go into this warehouse and just build these rooms and build out these sets that were just like, didn't exist before. Like that was really a cool experience to like see conception versus like execution when it comes to having a full crew doing stuff like that. And it was really, really neat. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's hard to kind of pinpoint because there's so many different experiences I've had that were like really mind blowing, but um, all kind of informing each other. And so every time I did something cool, the next time I did something cool, I was like, Oh, this is similar to like that last cool thing I did. Like, I understand this now. So like every time it gets like progressively more comfortable. Um, I think, but I, I will say that I think working for Levi's was probably like, that's actually to answer a question you asked before. I think that's when I found out I made it when Levi's was like, Hey, will you come be our photographer? I was like, Yep, I think I did it. <laughs> you uh, mentioned that you moved from Oakland down to LA. Mm -hmm. What has been the biggest difference that you've noticed? Um, and then what do you miss about the Bay Area? Man. Well, what I miss about the Bay Area is you could kidnap me from anywhere in the Bay Area, blindfold me, drive me around for six hours and drop me off somewhere random in the dark. And I would know where I was and be able to get home. <laughs> you can't do that to me in LA. I have no idea. Um, and the Bay, like it left this, it, it changed me as a person. It, it developed me as a person. I'm very much a Bay area person. Um, the culture there, the climate, um, the difference in like, you can be at the ocean in, in one, and then 20 minutes later, you're on a mountain, 20 minutes later, you're in the desert, you know, everything is right there. Um, but you know, transit too public transit is a thing in in the bay area it, it's a thing in la but i haven't seen it <laughs> really like i haven't experienced it um but being able to get around in the bay area is very much very different um but also i got super comfortable in the bay area because you know i grew up there i knew all the spots i was photographing all the same things um so i needed to change where i was to kind of put myself in a different mindset in order to be more productive because i think i just was really really comfortable there um so i think with la it's just it's just a different speed and it's hard to explain because there are parts of los angeles that are very hustle and bustle and like very busy but there are also parts of los angeles like where i live that's very quiet very slowed down um and very reminiscent of the Bay Area in a lot of ways. Like the place that I live, I live in um, really close to Highland Park. And it's basically like they just took Oakland, copied it, and then dropped it in LA. Like it's very Oakland-like in this area. Um, but again, um, you know, I live in my own place instead of with roommates now. And um, I'm close to different things than I was close to in the Bay Area. Like where I lived, I could like walk down the street to like my favorite corner store and then walk a little farther. And there's like all the food that I'm like used to eating here. It's like, I got to get in my car and I got to drive, <laughs> which is like not always ideal. Um, but then also I'm a 10 minute drive away from like really cool stuff. Like, you know, the canyons, um, you know, I could go down to Venice if I want. Um, I could drive out you know, less than an hour and I'm in Palm Springs or, or the desert over there. Um, it's very, it's very similar, but also really, really different. Um, and I can't really speak to the life of an LA person because I moved here during a pandemic. So like, I've only seen like five people the entire time I've been here. So uh, 
it's it's a different pace um and i dig it i think for now i dig it but we'll see where i end up next see you and me have had two completely different experiences um yeah so i grew up down here i grew up i mean i went to school up north and then uh we moved my girlfriend and i moved down here to try and get a job and then this is all during the pandemic Mm. and then uh it's so different it is very different i live in hollywood so there's that's we also got that so but the one thing i do enjoy about hollywood is that freestyles like a hop skip and a jump away i was just there yesterday yeah (laughs) so it's like that's nice but yeah i i definitely miss the bay area um i'm not a fan of driving everywhere i i I really like (laughs) Cause I lived off of Terraval, so the L was right oh, in front yeah. of my house. Oh, so man. I would literally like, I would wake up and walk 10 feet and I'd be right on the L into downtown mm-hmm. and, or take the L, get off at Embarcadero, take the M and I'm at school. Yeah. So it was just like, that's what I miss the most. And parking was a lot easier up North than down here. That is oh. something you noticed. I I have I have literally spent like forty five minutes trying to find a parking spot sometimes in front of my apartment. Dude, and Hollywood's I, rough. Yeah, I mean, even here, like I live in a neighborhood that's like pretty, you know, residential, and it's su- parking sucks. I got a ticket when I was gone when my car was parked like in a spot that is a spot. It's not like it's not restricted. There's no like anything, but I still got a ticket somehow, and I'm just like, Jesus. So I got to deal with that now. But yeah, parking down here sucks real bad yeah (laughs) you have always been very passionate about coffee me being someone who's new to specialty coffee uh what are some tips maybe some coffee brands to try out and your favorite coffee shops you've ever been to great question it's funny because i'm actually drinking tea right now (laughs) i've been drinking a lot of tea lately um mostly because it's a lot easier to make than coffee uh, sometimes when you're really lazy. Um, and I do like a good black tea with a little bit of oat milk. So mm. I will say though, um, specialty coffee, there's a lot, there's almost infinite possibilities. Um, I would say figure out what, um, what you like in a coffee. Like, do you like coffee that's like more chocolatey and like fuller bodied or do you like a coffee that's more fruity and bright and that'll that'll kind of give you an idea of what regions you like coffee from so if you're really into like fruity coffee most of the coffee you're going to like is probably going to be from like africa if you like really chocolatey full body coffees most of the coffee you're going to like is probably going to be from south america but there's overlap there too so i would say just try as many coffees as you can um and uh, try to find coffees that are direct trade with farmers who are supporting the farmers that they buy from because we're entering a coffee crisis right now where uh, because of global warming, coffee yields are way, 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 way down and uh, like farmers are struggling really hard. So the more we can do to support them, the better because uh, if coffee goes away, that'll suck <laughs> a lot. Um, there are some really great brands. Um, one of the roasters I've always loved is Heart Roasters from Portland. Um, I haven't had any of their coffee in a little bit because I've been moving around a bunch, but um, their stereo blend is really great. They usually have like two different coffees that are blended together, um, which is why they call it stereo. Super, super good. Um, but uh, a lot of coffee I've been drinking lately has come from Kumquat, which is my favorite coffee shop down here in LA. Literally going there after this interview. Yes. I'm going, I'm li- I ordered a coffee last night to go pick up after nice. the interview. So I'll be Dude, any, there. Any coffee from there. That's my, that's my, um, my tip is to go to Kumquat, whatever coffee they're carrying. Uh, they have market lane, which is really good. They have, um, Oh, what's that Korean coffee? Um, shoot. I need to, I need to figure this out. Cause I love that coffee. Uh, I've been really in love with a uh, Novo uh yeah novo's really really good de, i don't know how to say it. it's ojo ojo de agua ojo de agua yeah that's a that, i'm not <laughs> really white person trying to pronounce that but yeah that's my favorite right now that yeah that's that stuff is really good they have the kumquat has the best cold brew coffee that i've had 
I think ever. Um, it's it, they. Oh, I don't know what they do, but they always kill it with. Um, oh, Fritz, Fritz Coffee Company. So Fritz is a coffee company um, from Korea, and it's direct from Korea. So I'm not sure where they get their beans. I think they get a lot of their beans from Vietnam and also Africa. But um, I don't know what they're doing over there. But they, their their branding is on point. They have the coolest branding, but all the coffees I've had for them are just like very satisfying. Um, so I'd check out Fritz Coffee. Um, I'd say my runner-up for favorite coffee shop. Ooh, I can't even say that. Damn. I think my actual favorite coffee shop, I love Kumquat, but Maru, oh man, it's so good. <laughs> See, the issue is, is that you, I asked you about one or two weeks ago about where to try in LA and yeah. where we were located, Kumquat was closer. So we went to Kumquat and mm -hmm. that was like one of the best coffees I've ever had. Mm -hmm. So now I'm like, I really don't want to try something different. And that's like what I'm stuck <laughs> at. And I'm like, uh, but uh, definitely I'll try Maru. Well, here's the before thing about, I leave. before Maru and come about Maru and Kumquat is Kumquat is a multi-roaster. So they carry a bunch of coffees from other people. Maru is their own roaster, like they roast their own coffee. So um, they're both coffee shops, but they're just very different. So like, I think Maru is worth going to because they roast their own coffee and they do an excellent, excellent job at doing it. All of their coffees are really, really good. They have like a cold brew that they sell in bottles that like I, I have all the time. So, so good. Um, and then my friend Jacob is, uh, is one of the owners and he's, he's an incredible dude. Um, plus their cafes are gorgeous. So either the, the Los Feliz um, one that's on Hillhurst, that's the one I usually go to, but then there's a downtown LA, like, I think it's like, near the arts district or something that one yeah I'll it's in the arts to. district yeah that one i'll go to um every once in a while and it's usually not crowded at all it's really like uh not a lot of traffic over there but that space is where i think they do most of their roasting it's really beautiful it's like really worth checking out so um yeah what is your go-to coffee brewing method and why <laughs> um Okay, so I, I was in specialty coffee for about 10 years. Um, so I've brewed coffee every way you can imagine. Um, it's a toss-up between two ways. So my number one, my favorite way to brew coffee is Chemex. And if you've seen a Chemex, it's, yeah, it's the, it's the, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's so beautiful. I, yeah. Everyone was always like, oh, it's so, I was like, how can a glass bottle make coffee look? And then I, I started... I, I was just like how it was it was re it's really nice I don't know it how just does it I was just like wow this is <laughs> nice like now that ever since I got it I've I've probably taken like two three photos every single roll yeah of film that I have with it and I just don't know why so like I have a bunch <laughs> of pictures of a Chemex now uh in my uh files dude it just elevates a morning routine to art because it's this beautiful glass uh, carafe that you brew coffee into and because of the way their filters are made it's just so clean like it's such a clean good coffee um, but it does take a little bit more of setup to like do it and you kind of got to know what you're doing to brew it properly you can't just like go for it um, so on that note if I'm not feeling like or if I'm out of filters or if I'm not feeling like going for full Chemex, um, I'll do a V60, but it's very specific V60. I have this, um, it's a ceramic dripper. It's from Zero Japan. It's called a Bee House. And it's just this orange V60 thing. And um, it takes number four filters. And it's just like, it's so, so, so simple, but it just, it's just consistently the easiest, fastest way to make like good coffee. That's really stylish too. It just sits on top of your coffee mug and you just brew it right into your mug. It's like beautiful. Or you can brew it, you know, into a little server or something, but it's just like, I'll never leave that thing behind. That's coming with me everywhere I go to make coffee. Um, so if it's not the Chemex, it's definitely the Bee House. See, I went from a Keurig to a Chemex, so. Oh man, wow, that's a jump. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I've. I don't know. I think it was uh, Joe Greer talked about it last year. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, that's interesting. And then I started seeing a bunch of people like post about it. And I, I've always drank coffee, like, but I've always just done Folgers and Keurig or cheese. Yeah. So I jumped from Folgers to Novo. Um, 
I did wow. try stump. Yeah, I tried stump. Uh, how do you say it? Stump, stump time? Yeah, I tried that. Didn't like it. Mm. I didn't. Um, but definitely fell in love with. Uh, it's it's a weird. It's so different. Like I even put Folgers through the Chemex, and I was like, it tastes better than going through a Keurig. And I was like, <laughs> how does? I was like, how does that even happen? But um, that's yeah. I would say though, if you're going to try out different coffees, um, because Novo, that kind of coffee is very like single origin. They focus really on like super fit, like specific flavor profiles. I would just say like even Stump Towns offerings, Blue Bottle too, like those other, like maybe bigger coffee companies, they have like uh, <clears throat> single origin coffees that are like that as well. Try as many single origins as you can, because then you'll start to really figure out like, oh, I love like for me, um, Ethiopian is probably my favorite, um, Guatemala being a close second. And either of those as a natural process. Oh, man, um, if you can find a natural process Ethiopian coffee, it tastes like straight up blueberries. It's crazy. So um, that's another just, thing that was like really shocking was like the actual like you could taste the actual like flavors. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't know that was a thing. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna just drain it with some coffee creamer. That's what yeah. I used to do. And then well, now I'm like, oh, I could drink this black. And I'm like, exactly. eh. I was like, how is this even possible? Never really thought of that. It was like such a, I, I guess an awakening moment, but it was like, yeah. I was like, wow. I mean, I love, I love crappy diner coffee. Like if I go to a hole in the wall diner somewhere late at night with some friends, like yeah, give me that crappy diner coffee that's probably Folgers. Like I'll put hella cream and sugar in it. And it's there's something super satisfying about a shitty cup of coffee. Um, but, you know, if I'm waking up in the morning, you know, by myself, or if I'm going to a coffee shop and I'm paying like whatever, like five bucks for a cup of coffee, it better be quality, like high quality. <laughs> so yeah, I never thought of it that <laughs> way. I've always, it was like Starbucks. I always got the same drink. I still get the same drink. It's a peppermint mocha, always. Nice. <laughs> and then, yeah, I ordered. Everyone's like, you order that like in June. I'm like, why don't you order it in June? It's like, you have to get some kind of flavor to get that. See, I, I worked at Starbucks for four years. And so I figured out the best coffee drink at Starbucks is a soy chai with two ad shots. And it's it tastes like a graham cracker kind of almost. It's like really good. Um, but that's the only way I can drink Starbucks coffee because otherwise it's just like burnt dog hair or something. <laughs> it's not good otherwise. <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time out of your day to come on to the podcast. I really appreciate it. It was, uh, had a great time and, uh, definitely if you ever want to come back on, just let me know. Yeah, man, this was an honor. Thank you so much. If you would like to see some of the amazing work of Chris, you can see him on YouTube, Instagram, and even his website. So please go check that out. All the information you would need is going to be in the description of this episode. If there's an artist you would like to see on the show, head on over to Instagram. Follow me at Joey underscore Valley. That is J O E Y underscore B A L L I. And shoot me a DM and tell me what you think. Thank you for listening and stay safe out there.